We're losing! Teamwork, guys, more teamwork. They're burying us alive! Eddie Shore? Oh, piss on Eddie Shore. Old-time hockey? Piss on old-time hockey! You're blowing it! Every scout in the NHL is out there tonight with contracts in their pocket, and they're looking for talent for winners. A minor league hockey coach comes up with a plan to save his team. Brutal violence. Listen as we discuss reasonably expensive hot dogs, aggressive guys in glasses, and weird hockey undergarments. Then we find out if Slapshot stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me, as always, is my buddy and pal, Alan Noah. How Yay. you doing, Al? Yay, that's me. Sorry, I was so excited. I just wanted to say hi. I am doing very well. How are you, James? Very good. I'm very excited. Um, you and I have something very exciting that uh, we're going to after the podcast tonight. Right. We're going to go see Back to the Future, the musical, which you gifted me a while ago. I don't even remember when. I think it might have been episode 350 or maybe something like that. But you know what? It's because there's a Back to the Future musical. And, you know, we're not exactly musical people, but we are Back to the Future people. I don't hate musicals as much as you do. I don't hate musicals, but a musical has to be really good for me to like it. Like, an action movie doesn't have to be unbelievable for me to like it, but... uh, We'll see how the Back to the Future of the Musical is. You know what? We'll, we can talk about what we thought about the musical next week in next week's episode. Right. But today we can talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny because, of course, we did uh, the original trilogy on the podcast leading up to Dial of Destiny. Now we've both seen it. So we can give our thoughts on it. Do we want to do spoiler free? Spoiler kind of free? Full spoilers? What do you think? Um, well, if there's anything you're going to say, we could just say, here's a spoiler and someone could skip ahead, uh, you know, 10 seconds. Okay. Fair point. Uh, just to remind our, uh, listeners, you loved the first three films. You said all three of them stood the test of time. You're not a fan of the fourth one, but, um, this film does acknowledge the fourth one's existence. Certainly it, uh, barely, it to it. It, right. I mean, there's a character that pops up that wouldn't make sense without the fourth film. And there's another character they reference, which wouldn't make sense without the fourth film. No, I think both of those would be fine without the fourth film because of the first film. Spoiler alert. Marion shows up at the end. That makes sense without Crystal Skull because she's in Raiders. So that's not a huge shock. If Crystal Skull doesn't exist, every single thing about Dial of Destiny works on the exact same level. Except for the fact that Marion's not in The Last Crusade. That's always fine. That always made sense. They were together and then they broke up. When we were talking about Temple of Doom and you're like, oh, it was a prequel because that explains why Marion isn't in it. I didn't really say it then, but like, no, it never really bothered me. They got together. They broke up. Why isn't the girlfriend from every James Bond movie in the next one, with exceptions, because they broke up. They're an on-again, off-again couple. Eh, I don't think that's much of a mystery. 
Uh, okay, we have completely different takes on that. That's fine. Uh, so, the fifth film, the final Indiana Jones film, certainly with Harrison Ford, directed by James Mangold, not Steven Spielberg, which a lot of people uh, uh, didn't know. Really? Yes, the person I saw it with uh, actually had no idea until it said directed by James Mangold. I mean, I am in touch with movie news and entertainment stuff, so I knew there were tons of interviews that said Steven Spielberg not returning, here's why, and I feel like I had read a lot about it. I knew about it, I'm a big fan of his, big fan of Spielberg, but what do you think of uh, Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny? I thought Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny was good. Liked it, didn't think it was amazing, does not hold a candle to the original trilogy, Certainly better than Crystal Skull, but that is not a compliment at all. Like, anything would be better than Crystal Skull. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was uneven. I thought there were pacing issues. I thought certain things were not explored really well that should have been explored more. I thought they spent too much time on certain things and not other things. But, yeah, I thought it was good. What did you think? You know, uh, similar. I found it uh, quite entertaining. I thought that there was a shocking lack of John Williams in the score. I thought it kind of came here and there, and then at the very end, at the, at the closing credits. What do you mean by that? Do you mean, like, the classic Indiana Jones theme, or just the score in general? Um, the score in general. I mean, even uh, Indiana Jones running through the uh, Arab market uh, in the first film, it's very Raiders-like, very John Williams-esque, you know, kind of that early Star Wars, E.T., Superman, John Williams, they kind of all have that similar feel that you kind of feel throughout the all, all the films. Uh, I just thought the score was different. The de-aging, uh, I thought it was very uh, very well done. I, yeah. I have not thought all of the de-aging that I've seen have been good, but it's getting better all the time. Oh, yeah. And Rogue One, which a lot of people refer to, uh, the, the last shot of Rogue One is a de-aged uh, Carrie Fisher. Well, not really de-aged. It's kind of like face transplanted onto another actress. But we, we've come a long way since then. And uh, I thought it was fun. I thought it was a fun ending to Indiana Jones. You know, it wasn't the unbelievable riding into the sunset, but that was a, a 40-something, uh, you know, still riding in the sunset Indiana Jones. The ending here was kind of a, you know, old man Jones. I I, I liked it. Yeah, I, I had a good time watching it as I left the theater and spent more time thinking about it. I really kind of felt like there were just aspects that were interesting that they just left on the table. Like, we see that he retires as a professor. Like, they're having a retirement party for him. That doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't talk about retiring? Was he forced into retirement? Does he want to retire? What does he want to do in his retirement? How does that make him feel? Oh, that's just one example. The whole thing about his son being dead, I really kind of felt like that was interesting, but they didn't really explore it that much. He just kind of says that he's sad once and that's sort of it. I I agree. I think it was service to the character that uh, let's just avoid the why wasn't Mutt around? Why didn't he mention Mutt ever? And you know, it added some grief to uh, Indiana Jones, which I think is is you know, it's it's uh, nice to see uh, you know, some character development there. It also did explain for the most part why Marion wasn't in the film for most of it, and you know, narratively, you know, why wasn't his wife there? Because they get married at the end of the fourth film, so they, they filled in some stuff there. The fan service. 
Musa, Sala. I thought he was going to be more in the film. He really had no real role in the film. Yeah, that kind of, to me, felt very, very empty. That was like, hey, let's put this guy in the movie because we can. And he's like the only person who's still alive other than Indy and Marion. And so here he is for one scene. You like him. And now he's gone. The shame being that... uh, the character that played Short Round, uh, Kihi Kwan, he is A-list. He's uh, an Academy Award winner. So it would have been nice to have had Short Round in there. But, you know, it uh, it didn't work out that way. I'm actually not only happy I-, I liked it. You know, we know each other well. I was like, Al didn't hate this. But Al hated this part and Al hated this part. But I was actually going to be disappointed if you said you hated it. Because I could see someone saying they hate it and plenty of people have. But um, I thought you were going to say something similar to what you said. Okay. Well, well done. What part did you think I was going to hate? I'm very curious. Um, I wasn't sure if you were really going to like um, the end part. I thought maybe because the ending of Crystal Skull was so uh, hated by people that that alone turned so many people off the film. Um, they go there at the end of the film. And, uh, it, you know, it's something completely different. Or out of the realm of like, oh, that's a little sci-fi uh, religious-esque, you know, magical there. This goes into a different genre of film than Indiana Jones. And I wasn't sure if maybe you would have uh, said that. that no, no, no. I, I can't allow that in Indiana Jones. Film. I mean, I don't love it. I won't spoil what happens at the end, that thing that you're referring to. But there is something very similar that happens in the Indiana Jones novels that I was bringing up that uh, I lent a few to my buddy Bruce, who still has not returned them, by the way, uh, which is fine. You can take your time, Bruce. But um, it kind of made me think of that. I didn't love it, but nah, whatever. It's fine. But let's talk about the movie that we are here to talk about today, Slapshot. This is a movie that you picked, and I had heard of, I think Will Arnett talked about this movie once, maybe in a couple episodes of Smartless. I love his podcast. He's a Canadian. He's a huge hockey fan. And when you mentioned it last week, I was like, oh, yeah, that does sound familiar. But for anyone who doesn't know, it's about the Charlestown Chiefs, a minor league hockey team in a struggling small town. When the town's steel mill is set to close, player coach Reggie Dunlop reads the writing on the wall. The team is going to fold. To try to save the team, Reggie concocts a lie that the team will be sold to a buyer in Florida if they start drawing a crowd. To do that, Reggie starts a new violent style of play. The more fights they start and the more blood they draw, the more the fans love them. The Chiefs also start to win games, but one player, Ned Braden, refuses to be a goon and wants to play simple, old-time hockey. Will Ned be able to convince Reggie that violence isn't the right way to win? Uh, but this movie came out before we were born in 1977. How did it do at the box office? This starred Paul Newman, and um, he might be most famously known to Gen Z and even our generation, really, as the guy that founded a food company, a nonprofit. Most of the products are pretty good, and yeah. it's uh, you know, the, all the products go to charity, and uh, uh, Paul Newman was a good guy. And not just a good guy, he was a box office superstar. Um, he was coming off $300 million earning films, and... This is when $100 million was like a billion dollars. I mean, this was huge. Do you even know any of the huge films that Paul Newman had been in? Totally fine if you're not sure of it, his 1970s blockbusters. I know that he was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I know nothing about that movie other than 
it's probably a shame that I haven't seen it, especially as a co-host of a podcast about movies. I think that's like a big one. That's like a big cinema movie that I haven't seen and I should. That's interesting. I've never seen it either. I do know what happens at the end. You don't know what happens at the end. Yeah, I think I do. Okay, that's all I know about the film too. But it's interesting you say that because I've always thought it would be interesting to come up with a list of like 10 films that I'm embarrassed I've never seen. I'm not embarrassed I've never seen Butch Cassidy, but there's some like modern films I'm embarrassed I've never seen. Oh, okay. But, uh, but you know, modern and classic. That, that would be interesting to talk about. But um, you're correct. That was one of the uh, $100 million hits, Butch Cassidy. Um, I'll give you a hint what his other uh, film was. I had seen the sequel to this film. Uh, it's a film starring Tom Cruise and Paul Newman called The Color of Money. That was from the 80s. And it's a sequel to a film from the 70s. Do you know what that is? The Sting. That's right. Yeah. The Sting. And then the 70s is known, you know, very like pessimistic films. And do you know what their big blockbuster, the big action blockbuster was kind of a theme of 70s films? Oh, disaster movies. Exactly. And Paul Newman was in one of the most famous ones. Towering Inferno. That's correct. Okay. So those were his huge films that he had just come off of. And then he does this small uh, $6 million budget film. Um, It was released on February 25th, 1977. It wound up earning $28 million domestically. So, you know, it wasn't the $100 million hit, but I'm sure the producers were very happy with it. It actually was the number 21 film, uh, 21st film uh, at the box office of 1977. So, you know, uh, 1977 had at least one film that you know that did better than it. Yeah, Star Wars. That's correct. Um, Paul Newman, I don't know him too well. Um, I've seen him in some stuff. I've mostly seen him as an older gentleman. I've seen him in The Color of Money. I saw him in um, Road to Perdition. Okay. It was that film. No. Uh, you know, he's an older guy in those films. In this film, uh, first of all, I understand what my parents are talking about. I, I mean, movie star. He's, oh, yeah. he's just got that presence. Like when Tom Cruise is on the screen, like he just knows what he's doing. Yes. Did you happen to look up and see how old he was when he filmed this? Uh, no, I did not. What would be your guess? I don't know. Late 40s? Something like that? You got to go higher. Uh, 50s? Paul Newman was born in 1925. This film is 1977. So he's 51 to 52 years old. Probably 51 if uh, the movie was released in February of 77. So, okay. you know, he's a 51-year-old playing one of the most violent sports there are. Uh, you know, they kind of talk in this film about old-time hockey. We're supposed to understand that it's a little more romantic and more for the game. What do you notice about the players? Just what they're wearing, or rather what they're not wearing. Oh, that they have like no protective gear, no helmets, anything like that? Absolutely. The goalie has one of those like Jason from Friday 13th masks, but there's nothing protecting his skull. It's literally just like elastic going around the, you know, to protect his nose. And uh, this is a violent sport. The 70s, particularly, were known as incredibly violent uh, hockey, both uh, minor league and, and professional hockey leagues. Uh, so I did find it a little jarring that he's not the coach, but that he is a 52-year-old playing, you know, and he's not kind of the mentor. He's like an active player. He's the captain. He's the coach. He's, you know, he's a very good player. So they didn't even like work in like he's an old man. Like, sure they do. They talk I, about that. I mean, a little bit, but not like as if like more like he's like Tom Berenger on uh, in Major League. Like he's, yeah, he's the old guy, like the veteran. It's pushing it at 52, I'm just saying. Sure. 
I think also the fact that it's minor league sort of allows you some wiggle room where in minor league, you know, there's young kids trying to break into the sport and want to be called up. There's has-beens and never was-is. And so he's a has-been. You're so, absolutely right. I mean, it's the way that like NBA players go to international leagues and they go to other leagues. Uh, you know what? Actually, that, that completely makes sense. Thinking of it that way. You know what? I was just kind of thinking of this as... In the 70s, there weren't, like today, there's only one major professional uh, organization for every sport. There's the NBA, there's the MLB, there's the NHL. In the 70s, people might be familiar mostly from the Will Ferrell film, Semi-Pro, but there was not just the NBA, there was the ABA, the American Basketball Association, a completely different uh, association that kind of merged slash folded into the NBA. And there were a lot of other leagues and you're absolutely right. In the 70s, there were so many of these leagues that actually I, I take it back. I, I changed my mind on that. It makes perfect sense because I had made the point that he's really athletic in this film. I just thought it was weird for an NHL player to do that in such a violent sport. But you're absolutely right. This is just a small town uh, club. Right, right. And I don't know anything about minor league hockey other than I was just talking with my cousin who lives in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he was telling me that they have a minor league hockey team and it's a huge deal. They do very well and they win the minor league championship and everyone in that town loves that local hockey team. I don't even know their name. I didn't bother to look it up, but I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting that today in 2023, it's still a thing. And in a small-ish town, I don't think of Hershey as a super small town, but it's a big draw, apparently, according to my cousin. Have you ever been to a minor league baseball game? They're actually really fun. I've gone to many of them. There's a team called the Long Island Ducks, which is not too terribly far from where I live, and it's a blast. Uh, We went to, I think, one Brooklyn Cyclones game many, many years ago, Courtney and I. I totally go back, but honestly, it's just more convenient to go to the Long Island Ducks. It's always a good time. It really is. They, the few minor league games I've ever been to are really, really fun. It's just kind of a, it's as if the owners are really interested in the people in the stands having a good time versus, you can kind of understand why the uh, owners at a baseball game or a basketball game is that they want to make sure it was good on TV. Right. So go is real cheap. It's an oh, yeah. easy way to entertain the whole family. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's just free parking and a hot dog and a soda is like, $12, which is still overpriced, but not like insane going to a game at City Field where that's like $30 or something. So it's a good time. Always a good time. You know, another thing about this film and another praise for Paul Newman. Um, Paul Newman has said in numerous interviews that uh, this is by far the most fun he's ever had in filming a movie. This is his favorite film experience, and it's actually his favorite film of his. Uh, you kind of have to, to watch and everything. And you can tell, especially after like The Towering Inferno and Bush Cassidy and all this other stuff, uh, this is so much more fun than, you know, Hustling Pool and uh, a little more drama. They get to bash people and, you know, it's not real blood, but, you know, you can't really fake checking. Right, right. So I'm unfamiliar with Paul Newman going into this movie. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. Or maybe I did see that movie with Tom Cruise, but I remember nothing about it. So like what you said earlier, like I, I see his magnetism. I see why every woman in the 70s loved this guy. He's very handsome. He's very charming. But his character, Reggie, I was into him at first, but I very quickly didn't like this guy. 
it really started after he has this scene where he's with a woman that he's sleeping with and he has some kind of relationship with her. And she says that she left her husband and she's been having an affair with a woman. By the way, just pause on that. Did you recognize that woman? No, but she did look like a, a movie star. She's the mom in Christmas Story. And she's like there topless in bed talking about having sex with a woman. It is the mom from Christmas Story. Ralphie, you know, the one who puts the soap in his mouth? Sure. That's her. But so she's talking to him and they're not like boyfriend, girlfriend. They're not exclusive, clearly, because she's talking about having this affair. But they clearly get along. He's listening to her. He's confiding in her his feelings about the hockey team going under. And then in the next scene, he uses that knowledge that she's been having an affair with a woman to taunt the goalie of the other team because that's her husband and he can get under the goalie's skin. And that's what leads to this first fight. And then that leads to this idea of, oh, we're just going to have fights all of the time. And I get it that what he cares about the most is hockey and winning. But I really felt like that was a betrayal of like this secret that this woman who he has a relationship with, confided in him, and he uses it for his own personal gain. Okay, fine, that's his character flaw, right? Like, he's he cares more about hockey than people's feelings. Fine. But then, like, he just kind of keeps lying to everyone. Like, he lies to all of his teammates about they're going to move to Florida, which I don't understand at all. Like, that is just really, really stupid. Like, I get the big picture of, like, okay, guys— we're going to fold. If you think that we're going to be sold, then we'll play better. And then maybe we will be sold. But like, what's the end game there? Sooner or later, the lie is going to come out. And, you know, okay, again, maybe it's, well, he's just made a mistake and he hasn't thought this through. He's the coach of this team. Coaches need to think ahead. Like, this is really, really dumb. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was convinced I missed a scene. You're right. I I didn't understand it. And there's a lot of things in this film that remind me of other films. And the whole point of Major League was the owner wanted the team to stay bad so that she could move to Florida. Right. And I thought, oh, that's where Major League stole that from. Ah, Yeah. It's the owner that that says that if you guys are good, that that's the deal I'll make. And uh, Right. But no, that's not what it was. I, I didn't quite understand why he was saying this because it came from nowhere and they would be out of a job at the end of the season. Right, right, right. And then there's also this other thing where there's like the manager, I guess, like the guy who's sort of the boss in the front office who is not the owner, but he knows who the owner is, but he won't tell anyone who the owner is. And eventually Reggie is like so frustrated. He wants to find out who owns this team. And the way he finds out who the real owner is, is he basically blackmails this manager guy and says, hey, do you remember that one time we won a game and we all got really, really drunk and I went into your hotel room and I saw you dressed in women's clothes? Well, I'm an enlightened guy. It doesn't bother me, but mm, do you really want that to get out? And so he blackmails him to get the information. I was like, that is really shitty. That's really fucking awful. That manager, by the way, is a punchline throughout the movie because he like makes them do weird things to promote the team. At the very end, he calls in NHL scouts for that final game. He doesn't have to do that. He's not doing that for any reason other than he wants to help these guys. He's a good guy. And Reggie just blackmails him 
because he's gay or a cross-dresser or transgender or whatever the word would have been in 1977. It's really fucking shitty. Then he goes to the owner and the owner says, you know what? I appreciate that you've been making money and you made the team good. Great job, Reggie, but I am still going to sell the team. It's a tax write-off and that's really shitty. That's a really shitty thing to do. And what does Reggie say? He says, you know what? Your kid looks like an F word the slur for a gay man. It's like, holy shit. What the fuck is wrong with you, man? Like, you have every right to be angry at this woman treating the the team and the people on it like a like a tax write-off. That's awful. But using that word, oh, it really got under my skin. And there were a lot of instances in this movie like that. It kind of made me think of Can't Hardly Wait, where there were just so many gay slurs air quotes, jokes, where it's like, at a certain point, you start to wonder, did the person who wrote this movie really hate gay people? This movie was written by a woman, by the way, Nancy Dowd, which doesn't mean she couldn't be homophobic. But like, after the fourth or fifth time, you're like, this really feels like the the screenwriter has an agenda of some kind. It's really felt shitty. I didn't think that way at all. I don't think the screenwriter, I don't think she had anything against gay people. These are goons. And that's the actual word that you use for these kind of guys in, in hockey. Yeah. They're goons. They're enforcers. They're, they're, they're huge at these Hanson brothers. I mean, they're, they're real trashy guys. And I'm not condoning anyway. I'm just answering your question. No, I do not think that the screenwriter was trying to get out some anti-homosexual rage through these hockey players. I think it's just this is what probably vulgar 1970s minor league hockey players would have said. Maybe like that first time when they're doing the fashion show and one of the players is like, I don't like being out here. I feel like a F word. I could believe that maybe that guy would say that in that context, but like... After so many instances, it starts to feel gratuitous. Because of that, because of all these other things, I don't like Reggie Dunlop. And I think you're supposed to. I think the audience is supposed to think, this guy is charming. He's got that Paul Newman smile. He's really handsome. He is trying to do the right thing. And hey, maybe he's misguided, but you're rooting for him. You're rooting for him to learn his lesson. I just wasn't really rooting for him. I mean, I could see, uh, certainly, you know, in the 70s, they knew, like, you know, having affairs and all this stuff is wrong. So certainly he's not a good character. Um, Sure. You know, these guys are based on some real uh, minor league hockey team. The screenwriter, her brother, played minor league hockey, and she kind of was inspired by his stories. Yeah, and uh, the the Hanson brothers are based on another set of brothers, and uh, I can only imagine that uh, now watching this, the uh, Bash brothers, the uh, and the Mighty Ducks are you know play on these Hanson brothers, who I did find uh, fun. I I like those three guys. You know what I like most about them? I love their glasses. Because there was (laughs) something about like you know in the eighties, those would be quote unquote nerd glasses, and I love that these guys kick ass, and and you know they kind of look like. They would have been cast in Revenge on theirs. They really do. Well, I think that's part of the joke is that they come onto the team and they look really goofy and they're talking about watching Speed Racer. Doesn't stand the test of time. They're playing with toys in their hotel room and they have the big glasses. So Reggie's like, I'm not going to play these guys. And only when he's desperate, he's like, fine, I'll put them in 
just because he doesn't know that they're goons. It's not like a strategic thing where he's like, you guys do that thing that you do, which is violence. He just puts them in and then they're violent. And he's like, aha. And I think the glasses kind of play into that, that you're not expecting that to come from people with glasses. So let's talk about the violence a little bit. What do you think this movie is saying about violence? Either violence in general, or violence in sports, or violence in hockey, or any of it. What do you think the movie is trying to say, if anything? People want blood and violence. People go to wrestling matches to see violence. People go to NASCAR. They don't go to see a car drive around a circle 500 times. They go to see crashes. People in hockey games, they love the fights. Every video game about hockey, it's a real important thing. How are the fights in the hockey going to be in this video game? It's a part of the sport. Old time hockey, I don't know what that means. And I think of, of hockey like a, it's kind of a violent sport. Not violent as in evil. I mean, like football, like lacrosse. It's a violent sport. Yeah. You know, it was a little bit cartoonish, the fact that they could like get into these brawls before they're thrown out. And it did seem like, why are these people still in the game when they like are doing something's way over the top? But you get penalties for, you know, sticking, but like, you know, beating the shit out of someone with your stick. Right. Like that usually you get thrown out of the uh, of the game. Right. But I guess my question is more about what the movie is saying about it. Like the meta commentary, the lesson, if you will. I think it's saying people love it. It's an easy way to be popular. Okay. So I was expecting something different because throughout the movie, there's this other character, Ned, who refuses to go along with the violence. And Ned is sort of made out to be like this bad guy by Reggie because he won't go along with it. Also, Reggie is like trying to maybe seduce his wife, then maybe not. Sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. It's really not clear. That was another reason why I didn't like Reggie. But I thought that the way this movie was going was that Reggie was going to learn his lesson that, hey, violence is wrong. We're not going to play that way. We're going to win these games the old-fashioned way with good old-fashioned hockey. And that's what Ned has been saying. Also, like, apparently the only way they're winning these games is because Ned is scoring goals. Like, they don't show any of that in the movie. You just see fights. But, like, In hockey, you need to have more goals to win the game. That's how it works. And apparently, Ned is the only one who can actually hit the puck into the goal. So, you know, that's an important part of the process. But that's where I thought the movie was going. That eventually, Reggie was going to learn that, in fact, Ned was correct. I thought they were going to meet in the middle. I thought they were going to learn, no, we don't have to do that. And then Reggie was going to get that one good punch in that was totally deserved to give to the other guy. And he's going to learn, look, this is hockey. There is violence in hockey. You don't have to be gratuitous about it, though. But... That's not what happens. Ned is benched, and then while the two teams are beating the shit out of each other in the final game, he starts stripping. And the song playing is The Stripper, which we heard in The Full Monty. But, like, it's very weird. And then the other team forfeits because one of the guys on the other team is like, this is terrible. You need to put a stop to that. This is obscene. The guy stripping is obscene, not the 12 dudes beating the fuck out of each other. That's fine. So it's sort of like a meta commentary on like violence is ridiculous, but there's really no like lesson about that. I didn't think. I thought that uh, Reggie's entire point was he was getting the crowd just as riled up with fun. 
I didn't love that, but that's absolutely what I thought that the end of the film was. That he was showing him, look, we could do something fun too. I bet if we came out all wearing, uh, you know, pink tutu, like ballerina outfits, we'd also get people like uh, hooing, hollering. Um, I think that's what he was trying to show. Like, uh, he's just doing something ridiculous. I don't think it was a stripping. He was kind of wearing these weird, I thought it was weird undergarments actually, but I think it was just weird like 70s hockey gear. That's what I think it is. Paul Newman's character was saying earlier in the film, we need to be popular so that we can move to Florida. And the way to do that is to be violent. What I did think was going to happen actually at the end is when Reggie Fonny goes out, I was like, no, he's going to throw a punch and everyone's going to be like, yay, Reggie's like a man now. But luckily he didn't. I thought that was going to just ruin what two hours of character development would have done. I don't think there is any character development. I don't really think there's any lesson here. To me, the lesson would have been, yeah, violence is wrong. Also, the consequence of violence is someone getting really hurt. You can Google it. I did earlier. Real life hockey injuries. Apparently one guy died. People have been really terribly hurt, blinded, concussed, stitches. That's where I thought this was going. That, hey, this violence has a real negative consequence. Someone's going to lose an eye, get really hurt, you know, be hospitalized. Nope. And so, like, this whatever air quotes lesson of, like, well, violence is spectacle and spectacle is what's important, not the violence because the guy is stripping None of that landed. I didn't think it worked at all. I guess the one thing that did work was I was thinking about it after the movie ended, but I was like, what does it mean? What are they trying to say? And I don't think there's really anything there. I don't really think there's a message, a point, and I just found that to be very, very disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that the lesson was it can go, I guess, either way, but uh, with getting the crowd riled. But Reggie could have tried to make that argument a little more obvious earlier by saying, hey, guys, why don't we just have a real fun halftime show like what these minor league teams usually do these days? Right. And, you know, the fact is they're all out of a job at the end. It's not like the owner was like, oh, I see what the big crowd is. We're going to stay and ma- and I'll make money here. Well, the the way that it ends is that Reggie gets a new job at some other team and he's going to bring his friends along and he tries to convince his ex-wife to come and she says no. But then he's like says to one of the other people like, oh, she's going to come. Then Ned gets back together with his estranged wife because Reggie wasn't really sleeping with her. He was just trying to maybe who knows. So then like what's the. The lesson there that Ned was right to not be violent? Well, maybe not because Reggie was clearly right about being violent. So it's all very muddled. It's all very confusing. I found it to be a very, very, very weird, strange, anticlimactic ending. But speaking of endings, I will ask you, James, what did you think of the movie as a whole? Does it stand the test of time? You know, this film reminds me of another 1970s, a classic film that we reviewed, Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen Halloween. I said it didn't stand the test of time only because that was, to me, the archetype of every slasher film that I'd eventually seen. And I've seen all the modern takes on it. Mm-hmm. And by the time I saw Halloween, I was like, oh, okay, it's Jamie Lee Curtis who survives at the end. And, you know, I know, you know the formula here. And I didn't find it that particular film that interesting. And this film, 
um, I found it very similar. As I'm watching it, I go, oh, this is very Bad News Bears-like. Uh, these are like foul-mouthed athletes. And in the end, the solution isn't necessarily to win, but to fuck up the other team worse. I mean, here they, they win, like, as an aside, but, like, they didn't care about winning. Like, the halftime talk, I thought was kind of funny, where they're like, let's just fuck them up, guys. And then it immediately does one of those uh, sm- smash cut or jump cut? Smash, smash cut. cut. Yep. yep. You're right. Smash cut right to them being the shit out of the other team. I thought that was funny. Then I thought, um, here's where the Major League thing comes from. But no, I thought Major League did that better because I thought that owner was more interesting. It's a 70s film. There's no score going through the film. Like you'd hear Mighty Ducks or one of those things, just a little, you know, orchestra on the background and scenes. I just didn't find it as rewarding to watch it. The minor characters were pretty funny. But it's just overall, it was a two-hour film, and I was kind of going in and out of the film, and I was not looking at my phone. It was just a slow film. It like if it was, I think if this film was remade, this could be a real fun film. You know, cut out the you know the, the f words you don't like. You don't need it. Let them curse and say all those stupid things. Um, you know, the boobs in it. Um, yeah, it's a gratuitous thing. Today, this would be, uh, you know, maybe even if you made a rated R film, they would be probably more of a reason to have boobs in there. Actually, I thought it was kind of entertaining, but it's just that there's so many better sports films. And I've said it before, I'm a fan of that, you know, 90s sports formula, even if it's the same thing. I didn't think this particular formula to be that fun. Like, I didn't really love Bad News Bears when we reviewed it. Um, so to me, it does not stand the test of time. But uh, what do you think? Did you find uh, Slapshot to be entertaining? Did you think it stands the test of time? What are your thoughts? I found it to be entertaining in the beginning. You're right that it's slow. It didn't really bother me much. I didn't really feel like it was dragging. I just felt like it didn't go anywhere It really, really does not stick the landing, just narratively. It didn't wrap up the story. These characters didn't have, like, satisfying arcs. Like, maybe they sometimes start to a little bit, and then it just goes away. And I found that to be really disappointing, because they could have gone somewhere. The moral of the story doesn't even have to be violence is wrong. That's where I thought it was going. But they could have gone the other way and said, hey, in hockey, violence is everything. And okay, fine. If that's your take, if that's what you're going for, sure. Make that argument. Tell that story. Cool. But this wasn't unexpected in like, oh, that was a pleasant surprise. This was unexpected in, it just seems like they didn't know what the fuck to do and how to end the movie. And so they just kind of ended it. And I really, really didn't like that. All of the anti-gay stuff, they use the F word and the D word for a lesbian. I wanted to like Reggie and I think I was supposed to like Reggie and I just couldn't. And maybe that's me. And if everyone in the seventies did because of that million dollar Paul Newman smile, sure, I get it, but it just didn't work for me. And I'm going to say that the movie does not stand the test of time. I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I've seen a Paul Newman movie, but no, it does not. All right. I do hope we see a lot more Paul Newman films because that guy has a presence. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're watching another movie, also from 1977, that I've never seen before. I don't know if you have. Star Wars? No, not Star Wars. Smokey and the Bandit. I feel like it's come up in conversation. It's on Netflix, so let's watch Smokey and the Bandit. Let's see if it stands the test of time. Let's do that. 
In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can send us an email to testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.